you're listening to On the Couch with Carly. Carly's Couch is a safe space to talk. I'm a psychologist, but I'm not your pipe-smoking, tweed-wearing stereotype. Hello and welcome to another episode of On the Couch with Carly. Today, I'd like to talk to you about personal disclosure in therapy, i.e. when when we talk about disclosure, we mean what when the therapist discloses anything about their personal life. And it's quite an interesting subject. And if you know anything about therapists, you'll know that we are particularly prickly about disclosing personal information. Um, this is obviously different for different therapists. So everybody has their own way of managing this. But we're pretty much taught to keep our personal information and our personal lives separate from our from the therapy room. So much so that, you know, unlike, you know, if you go to a banker who has their family pictures up on their desk and pictures of their kids, therapists don't usually have pictures of their families in their offices. Um, and we also don't really talk about our, our private lives when our clients ask us about ourselves or anything that we, um, you know, anything to do with our private lives. We mostly avoid the, the subject or speak about the meaning of the question rather than actually giving any information. Um, and the, the reason for this is, well, I suppose partly because it's really important that when you come to therapy, you feel like you have full access to a person who is, well, really for you and that they are not coming in to the process with any of their stuff, with, you know, with any of their needs. Um, so if you know, for example, that this person's not feeling well or they're struggling with their, I don't know, let's just assume they they come in, you come into therapy and you say to the therapist, oh, how are you? And the therapist says, oh, I've just had such a bad day. You know, it's just been so stressful. Then all of a sudden you're thinking about your therapist and your therapist's needs and your therapist's feelings and not and the therapy is no longer just for you. So I think the more you know about someone, the more you're going to think about them, the more you're going to um, be concerned about them, and the more you're going to kind of think of them as a person who has th thoughts and feelings and needs. Whereas what you're really supposed to do in therapy is think about yourself. So that's how I make sense of it. But I also think, and I know theoretically, that um, we have to... Uh, try and keep our stuff out of the therapy room and try and keep our personal lives out because we really want our clients to to not know us and to almost see us as a as a blank canvas on which to project their interpretations of who we are and what we're about because the the truth is we we use those to make sense of you as the client so if, let me give you an example so if i'm if I'm sitting there as the, as the therapist and um, I ask you about, um, say, for example, how you're feeling about your exams coming up and my question stimulates this thought in you that I'm being particularly obsessive about your marks or I'm, I'm questioning your grades or I'm, you know, and, and you say to me, um, why do you always have to be so concerned with my grades? Something like that. Then I can really help to interpret that around that being something that you're doing 
as the client. You're you're projecting that onto me. You're putting that onto me. And that's what we call a transference, which is when something about your past or your experience in relationships is being projected onto the therapist and you have a feeling that I'm doing something in the relationship that I'm probably not doing. It's just something that you've inter- interpreted based on feelings you have about probably someone else who was like that, you know, so possibly either your mom or your dad or someone else in your life was obsessed with marks. And that's why you feel like I am being like that in that moment. And we'll get to that. And then there'll be a process that you can then go through. You can then start to to unpack that and make sense of that, make sense of the feelings that are connected to that. So that that is the, that is the bottom line. Um, obviously, this um, extends to you know, we try and hide our our personal lives for the most part from our clients. And that includes um, social media. So, you know, for the most part, clients shouldn't be able to access our private social media. It's something I had to learn the hard way. Um, You know, that there is a, there isn't a need to, to, to keep that stuff private. Um, But obviously that's quite a new problem that has been facing psychologists only in recent times. Um, but it's, it's a gray area because now, um, I have my blog, you know, which has got some personal information on it and, you know, my clients can access that it's on the internet. Um, so I just have to be really aware of like what I put out. Same with this podcast, you know, I've got to be really aware of what I'm putting out there that it's not something that would go beyond what I would say in a therapy room. Um, so yeah, I think that's quite an interesting quite an interesting concept just to think about if you aren't aware of that as someone who isn't aware of you know what this profession entails it's a very fascinating aspect of the of the work that that we kind of keep our private lives very very hidden from our clients um and there's another element of that and that is that if we see our clients out in public we are we we don't acknowledge them and and that's often to protect our clients because we don't want our clients to have to explain to someone who that person is if they haven't told them they're in therapy. Um, but it's also for that same reason that we that we try and keep our, our personal and our professional lives separate. Um, but in saying that, I decided to play with that a little bit today. And so even though I am fully on board with the fact that psychologists should not be disclosing personal information although I am aware that there are times when that is so unavoidable and you just have to deal with it. So sometimes there's there's things that just come up. I mean, I went on maternity leave last year and, you know, very obviously I couldn't hide that anymore at some point. (laughs) So there's things that we really do have to acknowledge are just impossible to hide um, about who we are. Um, And that's okay. You know, we've got to manage that. We've got to work with that. But when it comes to choosing to disclose personal information, I thought I would sort of walk the line a little bit today in this session. And I decided to go um, onto the internet and Google questions for psychologists. And what I came up with um, was this great website called Psych Central, where they ask 10 questions of different psychologists every week. And I thought I would just play along with that and um, answer these 10 questions. And they are a little bit personal, but not really. They're mostly about the work. Um, but in a way, it's a, it's a, a little bit different from um, what you would get if you, if you met me in therapy, because in therapy, you don't get the opportunity to ask me any questions. Um, you know, I, I suppose that's not entirely true. People ask me questions all the time. You just might not get 
an incredibly satisfying answer in the way you would if you were interviewing me for a magazine. So here is a kind of version of an interview that I'm going to offer you. Um, I'm interviewing myself though. <laughs> so so there's 10 questions, okay? Um, the first question is, what's surprised you the most about being a therapist? And my answer to that is that what's surprising about being a therapist, and I suppose I've been doing this now, well, I started my training, you know, 10 years ago, basically. So I suppose what's really surprising for me is how interesting this job still is to me, how intrigued I am by human lives, how fascinated I am by human stories and how much of a privilege and a pleasure it is to be on a journey with another human being while they discover themselves. Um, I really am stimulated by my work and I'm stimulated on, on many levels. I'm stimulated intellectually. I'm stimulated creatively. I feel like my work is creative. I have to find creative solutions. I have to think creatively in terms of looking at a at a group of problems or a, a model of, of, of a person and try and figure out, you know, what I'm seeing, what am I looking at. Um, yeah, so it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating work. And I think that that's such a privilege and, and such, an, such a great, wow, what a great honor to have a job that you feel stimulated by. You know, and I, I see a lot of people who are often sort of halfway through their careers or only a short way down the line in their careers and, and feeling a bit demotivated and feeling understimulated and like they're looking for something else, you know. And I'm so lucky that I have that feeling in my work. I mean, obviously, it doesn't always feel that way. There's some, definitely some moments where there's like a uh, feeling, but it's really few and far between. And we always come back to this place of, wow, this is exciting. Um, the other thing I thought about when I saw this question is like, what surprises you the most? You know, I suppose it's this idea that people give themselves such a hard time. Um, we don't give ourselves enough credit, I don't think. Um, so much, you know, I see so many people come to me at their lowest points. And what I see in them that they don't see in themselves is so often this incredible resilience, this strength, this power, this, this you know, this immense res resilience that they have, that, that if they could see it, they would... They would feel they could overcome anything. They would feel that they could they could really do anything in this world. And and I and it's it's such a it's such a beautiful thing when someone gets it, when someone finds that inner resourcefulness inside of themselves and and connects with it and, and really believes in themselves. You know that most people have got so much um, gumption. You know, like a like they can go out and 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 get what they want and. And obviously that's not the case for everyone, but even the people that don't feel that way, we get there in the end. You know, there's something, there's something so beautiful about actualizing that and about facilitating that with someone. So yeah, that's, that's always my biggest shock is how little credit we give ourselves and how people come into therapy seeing the worst of themselves and, and really ignoring the parts of themselves that, um, that, are so, that are so capable and so amazing. The second question is, what's the latest and greatest book you've read related to mental health psychology or psychotherapy? Um, I have to be honest with you, my books, my, my, my books are mostly, um, you know, I, I'm not so into reading 
psychology books that much. I when I read, I read for pleasure mostly. But I have but I have really, really loved and gotten into the work of Brene Brown recently. So she is a standout for me in terms of um I guess a, a self-help author, although I, I really do dislike that that term, but um I don't really dislike the term, I just dislike the the, the industry, let's call it that. Um, like I, like I, that kind of like get, get fixed in 10 steps industry that doesn't appeal to me. But what I love about Brene Brown is she speaks to our common humanity and she speaks to aspects that we can all re- resonate with, um, in ourselves. You know, the, the things she, she writes about, you know, that no one, no one would, would read what she's written and say like, oh, I, I, I cannot relate to this at all. She's, she's really relatable and she writes in a beautiful way as well. And if you haven't ever heard of Brene Brown, let me tell you, watch her TED Talk. She has written, uh, she's written a few books, but her TED Talks are really easily accessible. So you can literally just Google them now. The, the one is on vulnerability and the other one's on shame. And she's, she's a brilliant speaker. She also has a Netflix special. She's also been on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. She's, you know, she's quite a, she's quite a, She's quite a babe. She's doing she's doing the work, um, but her books are also really great. And I'd say the the one the standout for me is was daring greatly, and I really refer to that a lot in my work. I also love um, anything written by Oliver Sacks. He's he's now passed, but he was a brilliant neurologist and um, and therapist, and has a brilliant sense of humor. And he's he wrote a really great novel as well. Um, I'm trying to think what it's called now, but one of the one of the books that is he's famous for is the man who mistook his uh, wife for a hat or something like that, and he he writes about neuro, neurological disorders and how interesting they are and what they what they teach us about how the brain works and how our minds work. And then in terms of a, a more clinical kind of collection of books, anything written by Nancy McWilliams really, really stimulates me, um, you know, clinically. I think she writes for clinicians. She makes, she makes sense of, um, psychological, um, theories in a way that, that, that really kind of jumps out of the page. So she really helps me to feel like, oh, this is what it's going to feel like to work with these kinds of personalities, um, in the room. And this is how to think about, um, a human being from start to finish, you know, she does. So the two books I'm referring to is, uh, I think, Clinical Formulation and, um, and oh gosh, I can't think what the other one is. But the, but they, they're very much more like the, the therapists, therapists would, would, would read these books, not, I wouldn't say anyone else would be very interested in reading them. Okay, so that's that question. Number three, what's the biggest myth about therapy? So definitely the myth that you have to, that only really messed up people go to therapy or really, really kind of disturbed psycho people will go to therapy. Uh, such a problem that that is the, the myth that I suppose there's still so much taboo around going to therapy, although that's decreasing a lot and I'm loving that. But yeah, there's always been this, I think particularly in conservative cultures, um, particularly in religious groups um there's a there's a real kind of skepticism around therapy there's a real feeling that it's a kind of i don't know a pseudoscience or um it's not real it's just talking to someone paying paying to speak to someone or whatever um it's like why don't you just speak to your friend you know that kind of thing um but also the idea the other thing that i think is a myth of the, around therapy is this idea that if you go to therapy then it's a sign of weakness um and that's a huge pity uh, because 
honestly, I think it's one of the bravest things you can do is to choose to go to therapy and to encounter yourself, to really face your feelings and your fears and all the things that you are kind of haunted by. You know, you're going and you're saying, okay, this is me. This is what I struggle with. Um, I think that's flipping brave. Like, you know, it takes balls to go and and want to face that stuff. And sometimes we are forced to because we're in such a mess in ourselves. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not brave um, because you still have to do it. You know, you still have to walk the walk. And that's the thing about therapy. It's not a, it's not a quick fix. It's not just a walk into my office, have a conversation, you leave better. It's an ongoing work in progress. You, you have to stick it out. You have to you know, have to plug a plug away, and and that's the that's the part that I think takes such immense courage to stick it to stick it out to stick it out with yourself day in and day out, week in and week out. You know. So yeah. So the fourth question is: What seems to be the biggest obstacle for clients in therapy? So look, in South Africa, I think number one biggest obstacle is finances. I think uh, private psychologists are flipping expensive and we're looking at like a medical aid rate of around 900 rand an hour here. Um, so that's what I charge my private clients as well. So, you know, it's a lot of money to put aside every week um, to dedicate every month. You, you know, you really, you really have to you really have to be earning well to be able to afford that. And if you can't afford that, it can feel like a huge squeeze to try and find that money. Um, and really hard to 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 make that choice then, to put that money into something like that. So I think that's the one of the biggest barriers that keeps people from therapy. Um, I think also once you're in the therapy, self-sabotage is a huge thing. So we, we tend to we tend to get um you know, we confront the stuff. And then I think when when you realize that coming to therapy entails looking at your shit and actually dealing with it, and every week you have to look at it again and again and again, I think it can get really hard and people want to run away. And so very often the choice is made to rather, you know, to rather just bail rather than dealing with it and... And that's really unfortunate, but it happens a lot. And so, although probably consciously you're saying all sorts of other things, like I'm choosing to, to end therapy because I'm prioritizing this or I'm focusing on that or I don't have the time or it's too much effort or money or whatever it may be, but like underneath the, the, the underlying reasons are probably a bit of fear, a bit of resistance, um, you know, just not really being fully committed. And then I think... A big thing that comes with therapy, uh, which doesn't happen with everyone, but there, there is a certain kind of client who will come to you and say as a therapist, help me fix this, make this better, solve this problem for me. And it's, and it's really easy, I think, to um, get into the trap of expecting a therapist to do the work for you or expecting anyone else to do the work for you, you know, like, and, 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 and wanting a solution, wanting a fix, rather than realizing that the responsibility is always going to be on your shoulders. You you have to um, figure out your way through. You know, you you it's on you to to work through the the difficulties and to make different choices for yourself. And I can't do that for you. I can sit with you and think through things with you and make sense of it with you. Um, but at the end of the day, you're living your life, and and I think people really really do come undone at that stage of therapy when it's 
when it's like, sorry, the ball's in your court now. You've got to, you've got to make those changes. And and it can come sometimes become quite like a little bit of a loop where we're constantly just talking about why you're not making the changes. You know, what's difficult for you about making the changes, or what's what's preventing you from it, or what's the barrier? And uh, you know, that can be, um, yeah, that can be a bit difficult. And so really it's about getting in your own way then, you know, the obstacle is then yourself. Okay, so the fifth question is, what's the most challenging part about being a therapist? Um, so I mentioned in my previous episode about uh, confidentiality and how I can't speak to anyone about my work. And I think that is one of the most challenging aspects of my work, like just not being able to talk about it with other people and having to keep everything to myself, I think it does feel quite lonely and isolated sometimes, like not being able to share on the daily on a daily basis with someone. Um, and then, you know, also just dealing with some really intense interactions. So, you know, if people come to therapy and they're really struggling, sometimes people bring a whole lot of stuff into the room that is very intense and very challenging. Um, and particular personalities can be really hard work. Um, so people can be very demanding of therapy and, and of therapists. And it's, yeah, it's hard to, um, it's hard to think through everything all the time. Like, you know, as a therapist, you can't just, you can't just switch off. You can't just go into autopilot. Like you've got to constantly be present and in the moment and thinking and working on, 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 you know, understanding the person, understanding what you're feeling, understanding what they're feeling, making sense of it in terms of their the history and what they've, and what they've told you about themselves. Um, so it's a lot going on and, the more intense the experience with the client, the more challenging it is to kind of keep your thinking cap on in a way and to keep um, to keep present and to not um, resort to, you know, coping mechanisms, really. Um, so it's a lot of work and it's a lot of taking responsibility for your own feelings and, and working with yourself in the moment. Um, the other thing I also struggle with is with people who are resistant to being helped and they are struggling so much and they come into therapy and they almost just are defeatist and they and it's and it's it's very slow going where um they get in the way of their own progress and i suppose it's just sad for me and hard for me to witness someone who is not able to take the help, not able to make use of the process that they're in or make use of anything that's in their lives to assist themselves into a better place. And then it happens a lot. So I think the biggest challenge with this work is to not get defeated by witnessing and, and bearing witness to so much hard stuff, you know, so so many traumas and, and so much suffering um, to be witnessed witness to that and to sit with that with someone and to hold that space, you know, but to not let it get you down. I think that's quite challenging. Okay. Number six is what do you love about being a therapist? Um, so I love the the hours. I love the flexibility. I love the fact that I can dictate my schedule. So I currently only work certain hours of each day and I've sort of manage my schedule so that I have flexibility and I have time off and I really love that uh, especially as a new mom uh, it's given me the 
greatest gift of having time with my child. And um, I don't think everyone gets that. I think a lot of people are forced into jobs where you have to work eight hours a day, you have to work according to a certain schedule that's prescribed. And I'm lucky I don't have to do that. I can dictate my hours. I can decide exactly when I want to work. Um, and I, and I, and I unfortunately have to stick to those hours. I have to work them every week. But I mean, I think for the most part, I've got an incredible amount of flexibility and, and balance in my life. Um, and I just, I just love the fact that my job is about connecting with other people and connecting to like a common humanity. I think what a great privilege that that's what my job is, you know, that my interest is, is, is being with people and understanding them and and being with them in the hard times and helping them through it. You know, I think it's beautiful. Um, I really do really appreciate that. Um, and it's it's really cool to help someone. It's really rewarding, you know, um, to, to help someone feel better about themselves, to get them... To, you know, to facilitate someone who is making progress or to help someone to take a new direction in life, um, to help bring people greater awareness, to help them through difficult times. I mean, it's, this, is, this is pretty special stuff. Um, so that's hugely rewarding and, you know, keeps me going. It's like a, it's my fix, right? So, um, I don't, I don't know if I believe in altruism, Meh, maybe, but I'm not altruistic. I don't do this job because I'm like, you know, somehow better than anyone else or self-sacrificing or whatever. I do this job because it fulfills me. I do this job because helping people makes me feel good. And that's why I do it. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it's beneficial. To me, I love it. So that's that's the bottom line. So number seven is what's the best advice you can offer on leading a meaningful life? So yeah, I think to start, you have to be honest with yourself. I really am a very honest person. Some people would say too honest. I don't think that's a thing. I think I'm very, I'm very clear. I'm very honest. I'm very truthful. I don't have a filter sometimes in the sense that I say things as I, as I feel them. Um, but I really believe that you have to start by being honest with yourself. So what are you feeling? What's happening with you? Figuring out who you are. And it's such a big part of, of becoming um, a better person and becoming and, and, and enjoy, you know, enjoying life and finding meaning in life is, 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 is knowing yourself. I mean, I think that's what all the most ancient philosophers have said, you know, know thyself. Um, so, I, you know, therapy really helps that, with that. The, the clearer you are of yourself, the clearer, the clearer you are, the more you understand yourself, the better, you know, the easier it is to be honest. And then, to, to really um, take responsibility for your life. And I also feel like the other thing about a meaningful life is to, is to be grateful, to look at what we have rather than what we don't have. I really am a proponent of gratitude. I always used to run this thing on my blog called Gratitude Wednesdays. Uh, just to remind everyone once a week that there's there's a, there's lots to be grateful for, and that you can probably always at any time write a list about the things you're grateful for, and one should. It really helps the mood. So yes, I really do believe in the power of gratitude. Um, okay, number eight is if you have if you had your schooling and career choice to do all over again, would you choose the same profession, pr same profession or professional path? And if not, what would you do differently and why? 
Okay, so yes, I think I would choose the same. Um, sure. I sometimes fantasize about other career paths, but I think they're mostly fantasies. Like I imagine maybe going into banking and being like super rich and, you know, <laughs> and it's like ruthless in business and not caring about anyone. But it's definitely just a fantasy because um, I, I <laughs> I'm actually really happy with what but what I, with what I've got and I don't need more and I don't think rich people necessarily are happy I definitely don't think that's the the key to a meaningful life um but yeah it's it's not real I'm I actually really I'm happy with my choices I suppose I could do something more no there's really actually nothing I would rather do than this that's kind of cool okay number eight sorry number nine number nine if there's one thing you wished your clients or patients knew about treatment or mental illness what would it be okay so I think people um I think people feel alone a lot of the time and they feel like they're the only people that feel these feelings like I'm the only one with the struggle I'm the only one who has this problem and it's it's really it's really hard to um get past that like how do you move into a place of starting to share with people that you struggle starting to starting to share your vulnerability most people just hide that from everyone they think no i've just got to be happy and fun and playful and that's what people like and if i tell them i'm struggling they're not going to like me they're not going to want to hang out with me i'm a, i'm going to be debbie downer you know um so they end up feeling worse about the fact that they're feeling crap, you know, then they feel almost guilty or bad or shameful about the fact that they're having these these struggles, these difficulties. Um, so that's that's why I think therapy is so great is that it's so important to to realize that everybody struggles and um, I wish everybody knew this. I wish that everybody was told all the time that that it's okay to struggle, that, it, that everybody has hard times, that everybody feels these yucky feelings sometimes um, and that it's okay and that that those parts of you are not the bad parts, that, that they can be included in how you see yourself and that it's okay. So I really think therapy helps that that whole aspect is that, you, you know, you do just feel less alone when someone's completely acknowledging your feelings as normal and understandable reactions to your experiences. Um, I suppose I do believe that we have the power to change our lives and that, you know, there is there is almost a limitlessness to our our human potential and that includes our, our transformational abilities. I, I mean, I think... One of the things I really recommend for people to do when when they're in therapy is to look at the small steps that you take, you know. So one of the things we do as human beings is we we want to go from one to ten. We want to see a radical shift. And if we don't see that, then we feel like we're not making ground we're not making ground. We're not getting anywhere. And it's so important to acknowledge one to two, two to three. You know, to go from one to three is a huge jump. In accomplishment, you know, it's a huge change. It's a, it's a huge shift. It takes incremental steps to make radical change, but radical change is always possible. Always, always, always possible. And it's so beautiful to see when it does happen, when people look back and they go, Oh my word, I'm not where I used to be. Yeah. Okay. I'm not where I want to be, but I don't know if we're ever going to be where we want to be. Isn't it fun to still be? excited about the journey ahead to still look forward to things to still want to achieve things or want to go you know further into something yeah like we're never going to arrive there right 
So the most important thing is to acknowledge what, where you've come from and what you've been able to achieve that, thus far. Um, okay, the last question is, what personally do you do to cope with stress in your life? And this is probably the most personal that I'm prepared to go in terms of personal disclosure. So to wrap up this episode, I'm going to give you a little bit of myself and to teach you a little bit of what I do to take care of myself. So I am a huge, huge believer in self-care. Um, I talk about self-care a lot. Uh, it's a bit of a buzzword or it's a bit of a phrase that's, that's like, you know, around at the moment. And it's got a bit of a reputation for being about like going to the nail salon or getting a massage. It's quite bougie. But um, what I really think is important about self-care is it's about the self. So let's look at that. So so I, I guess I'm telling you a little bit about myself then in this process. So um, I believe that to um, take care of oneself and to not get stressed in life, one has to have balance. So you've got to, um, you've got to have, you've got to kind of like find the different aspects of yourself and you've got to stimulate those different aspects. So I, I really like to, um, like in my personality, I, they, I have so many different aspects of my personality, but like on the one hand, I'm, I'm really outgoing and I love being social. I'm like quite a social butterfly. So even though this is in stark contrast to my work, which is very cerebral, I'm sitting, I'm quiet, I'm listening, um, I'm in my head, you know, a lot. That means I need to balance that out with going out and seeing friends and going to events and being stimulated in a in a social way where I get to be outgoing and extroverted, which is my nature. Um yeah, so I that's really important for me. I need to I need to feel like I like I have that outlet. Um, and obviously, when I was younger, I was a lot more involved in in, in kind of my social world. And as I've gotten older, <laughs> I suppose it happens to the best of us. I've just sort of retreated a little bit from the social engagement, but it's still important. So you know, it may not be happening as often as it used to happen, but it has to happen still. And it, when it doesn't happen, it's it feels like I'm not like I'm not like all is not right, you know, like I need, I need that outlet to feel balanced and good and not stressed out. Um, so the other thing I like to do, and I always think is such a healthy and great thing and it's such a brilliant thing about living in Cape Town is that I like to go for walks and particularly walking in nature, anywhere where I can see nature. So in the mountain, in the forest, um, on the beach, on the promenade, in the park, whatever, you know, um, we have so much beautiful nature around us. And for me, like if I'm stressed or if I'm thinking about something too much or if I'm just feeling tense or if my shoulders are stiff from sitting down at the desk too long, to just step out and go for a walk and stretch my legs and hear the birds in the trees or hear the waves lapping the shore, like that for me is immediately um, therapeutic and calming and soothes me and, 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 and helps me to find my equilibrium again. Um, the other thing I also do, which is a kind of, it's a kind of hack that I developed, <laughs> is that when I'm feeling sad or lonely or like I, like I'm sore or tender inside emotionally, I like to call this giving myself a hug. And what I do is I make popcorn and I make hot chocolate and I put 
something like a really silly rom-com on like a like Notting Hill and I put on the, put it on Netflix and I crawl into bed and I eat my popcorn and drink my hot chocolate and watch Netflix and even though there might be times when that behavior set looks problematic like I, I suppose I could have interpreted it as like lazy unproductive you know we, we we have such amazing ways of being hard on ourselves but for me it's the it's the way I approach it so I I I think about it as if it is me giving myself a hug me tucking myself into bed and giving myself some love for a little bit of time and while I'm doing it I feel nourished I feel nurtured I feel taken care of and so that's that's my approach so th- that's a little hack of mine um so yeah so in terms of self-care my my approach is it really doesn't matter what you do for self-care as long as you are aware that you're doing it for you it's something that either makes you excited or um stimulated you know i, I always use the example of something that makes your heart zing you know like those things that just it's like ah oh, this feels so good um, or it's something that that soothes you, something that really provides comfort. That it's like you know, drinking a nice cup of tea and reading a good book, or that that self care. That's saying I'm doing this for you, I'm doing it for no one else but you. Um, and it's to and it's and it's to do it mindfully. So whatever you want to do, to do it mindfully, to do it with the intention of soothing yourself, of helping yourself through something difficult of attending to your emotions, of regulating your emotions and seeing yourself through um, a hard time and making it better. That's self-care. Um, and failing that, have a glass of wine. No, 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 no. <laughs> so yes, mostly I want you to do things that are healthy and constructive. Obviously, having a glass of wine is fine. We all know that's fine. Everything in moderation. But, um, you know, I, we all know that there's, there's crutches we use that are... We can call it self-care, but really it's just unhealthy. Having a glass of wine is not that. Having too much wine and feeling shit about yourself, that is not great. Um, Anyway, that's me for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I would love to hear from you. So hit me up. And I think it's about time to start telling you to subscribe to my podcast. I mean, I haven't done that yet. So if you've been liking what you've been hearing, if you want to hear more, subscribe and stay tuned. There'll be more episodes coming up. And yeah, let me know if you have any thoughts about this episode or future episodes. I'd love to hear from you. So hit me up at On The Couch With Carly. Thank you and goodbye. This podcast is recorded at Edible Audio in Cape Town, South Africa. Edited by Edible Audio. Original music by Alex Smiley.